Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we continue our Easter series entitled Journey to the Cross with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's examine the events on the first Sunday of Passion Week, Palm Sunday. Now let's open our Bibles as we go to all four Gospels and focus on the journey of Christ. I want you to imagine a conductor standing in front of a large orchestra. His baton is raised in the air. He stands motionless. The crowd that has come suddenly quiets. All conversation ceases. The vast room just before so noisy now falls deathly quiet. And in that moment, the eyes of every musician in the orchestra is fixed on one man. Everyone waits. It's clear to all, the one with the baton is in control of every strain of music that will soon fill the room. Picture Jesus that way during Passion Week. In John 10, verse 18, he said of his earthly life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It is possible to view the events of Passion Week as a horrible series of events gone wrong. Jesus entered into Jerusalem with such fanfare, and then the entire week went badly. But nothing could be further from the truth. As he awoke on the morning, we now call Palm Sunday, view him with a baton in his hand. He will direct everything that happens. He will orchestrate his enemy's reaction. He will direct the enthusiasm of the crowd. And he will so back his adversaries into a corner that they will have no choice but to put him to death at the Passover. From their perspective, things got horribly out of control. They wanted to put Jesus to death after the Passover when the crowds were long gone. But Jesus was directing even their plans. He had come to be the Passover lamb whose blood would be applied to all who believe. On Saturday, Jesus had been in the home of a man named Simon the leper, and a dinner was given for him. Mary had poured expensive perfume on his head and feet, and Jesus recognized this act of love as an act preparing him for his burial. And already one begins to see the contrast between what Christ's followers were expecting and what Christ was seeking to accomplish. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's now Sunday. Passover is now just a few days away. Passover was the biggest event on the Jewish calendar. Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem. They would travel overland in caravans. Some crossed the Mediterranean in ships. Others were local Galilean pilgrims. Some were even curious Gentile tourists. The Jewish historian Josephus said that on Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to three to four times its normal size. It would have been hard to just find a place to stay. Every room in Jerusalem would be occupied and rented out. The surrounding towns would all be filled to overflowing. Many lived in booths or in tents all surrounding the city. During this time, Jerusalem would be transformed into one of the largest centers in the world. If Jesus was to die for the sins of the world, he would step onto center stage. He would die with the eyes of the nation fixed on him. The Romans, under the leadership of Pontius Pilate, moved all their troops from their headquarters in Caesarea to Jerusalem, an 80-kilometer move. Pilate himself would make his temporary headquarters in the Antonio Fortress, right in Jerusalem, a fortified barrack for his soldiers should they need a place to fight from. The chance of Jewish riots would always be strong at Passover, so the Romans maximized their power to be brutal should they need to be. The problem was simple. Passover was the celebration of liberation from foreign domination. 
And so the Roman military would be on high alert, and Jerusalem would become a virtual police state. Our militia would be positioned every few yards. If there were a messianic uprising, the Romans would be ready. And at the temple, hundreds of thousands of unblemished lambs were being prepared for sacrifice. There was a drain pipe from the altar of the temple which would carry all that blood and drain it into the Kidron Valley which surrounds Jerusalem. Before that week was over, the entire valley around Jerusalem would run red with blood. And it is against this what seems to us an almost unrealistic or surrealistic scene, that the conductor mounts the podium, takes the baton in his hand, and is about to play music the world has never heard before. It is Sunday. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus climbs up the backside or the east side of the Mount of Olives. He leaves Bethany and he comes to the next village, a village called Bethpage, at the very top of the Mount of Olives. From there, if you are to get to Jerusalem, you have to go down a steep embankment, down into the Kidron Valley, and then climb up the other side to get into Jerusalem. But Jesus has stopped at Bethpage. From there, he sends two of his disciples to go into the village. And as soon as you enter it, he says, you'll find a colt tied there. Go get it. If anyone asks you why you're taking it, just say, the master has need of it. And so they enter the village and find a colt just as Jesus has described it. Both Mark and Luke tell us that somebody did ask why they were taking it. And Luke even tells us that someone was the owner. But he responds the way Jesus told them to respond. The master has need of it. And immediately the owner knows. He knows it's for Jesus. And he knows the surging crowds are now lining the way from Bethpage down the Mount of Olives all the way to the entrance of the city gates. The anticipation is overwhelming. This time, it may not be next year in Jerusalem. Perhaps this is this year in Jerusalem. Furthermore, everyone knows Everyone knows of the miracle worker. Everyone now knows he is the one who raised the dead and rotting body of Lazarus from the dead. And he is about to come this way. So the owner of the colt says, take it. And so they bring the donkey's colt. And it turns out the thing is so young, it won't even go without its mother being alongside. And Jesus sits on the little one. But why? Of course, he is conscious that as he enters into Jerusalem, he will fulfill scripture. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. But not just a donkey, but for Zechariah it is specific, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so conscious that he is fulfilling prophecy, Jesus mounts the donkey and he begins to travel to Jerusalem. But before we describe the journey, let's step back a bit. Passover, if you don't know, is the Jewish celebration of the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt, somewhere around 1445 B.C. God had told Pharaoh that he was to let Israel go. Pharaoh refused, and God had brought a series of plagues on Egypt that were destroying Egyptian agriculture and the Egyptian economy. Then on one night, the worst and most terrible plague happened. God announced that he was putting to death all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of the cattle to every firstborn person in the land. But as Israel prepared for that moment, they were to slaughter lambs and to put the blood of the slaughtered lamb on the door frames of their houses. That night, as the angel of death arrived to execute judgment on Egypt, he would see the blood and pass over the house, and it would be spared of judgment. And so Passover was the celebration of many things. God's mercy on those for whom a lamb was slain. 
God's deliverance from the hand of oppressors, God's promise for a future deliverance, all of that was combined in this one festival. In fact, Passover had become important for that very reason. Ever since the Babylonian captivity, for almost 600 years, Israel was enslaved by one nation after another. First it was Babylon, then it was Persia, then Greece, then Syria, and now the Romans. But whenever Passover happened, Israel would gather in Jerusalem and tell the story of how God destroyed Egypt and broke the power of the great Pharaoh. And they would wait for God, this time not to send Moses, but to send King David's son, the great Messiah, and he would deliver them. And every year when Passover was finished, the Messiah had not yet come. And the Jews would say to one another, next year in Jerusalem, next year, perhaps that will be the year that he comes. And the Sadducees had to walk a very fine line with the Roman overlords. On the one hand, they defended their right to celebrate Passover as a part of their religion. But on the other hand, they had to make sure that Rome understood that Passover was not really treason at all. This was very tricky, and it was a balancing act, and if it were to be upset, the Romans would simply come in and destroy the nation, and then would begin a new period of Jewish dispersion. It was tricky indeed. But for the last three years, remarkable things had been happening. Jesus of Nazareth has come upon the scene. Just like the prophets predicted, he had fed the multitude and healed the sick. The blind saw, the lame walked, the lepers were cleansed, and good news was preached to the poor. And now, just a short time ago, Jesus had done something even more remarkable. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. That event was earth-shattering. It was nothing short of an action of the great God of Israel. What was greater, the parting of the Red Sea or the raising of the dead? Everyone knew the answer. Truly, God was among them, and there was an anticipation this year in Jerusalem, not next year, but this year. Jesus would come to Jerusalem, ascend the throne, deliver Israel from the 600-year humiliation of being in bondage. And now the word was out. He was coming. And as he came from Bethany to Bethpage, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, or maybe over a hundred thousand pilgrims lined the way and were cheering him on. What a fascinating introduction to the significance of Palm Sunday, specifically in terms of the context of Jewish history and Passover. We see that Jesus clearly is the one orchestrating history as he came to die on the cross as the spotless Passover lamb right onto the center stage where all could see him. But was this Messiah long anticipated, the one that the Jews really wanted or understood? After the break, Dr. Neufeld will help us unpack this central question. What is biblical wisdom? Well, according to the book of Proverbs, it means skill in living. It's the ability to navigate through all of life's situations, following God's direction, and it impacts everything that we do. Dr. Neufeld's recent series called Skillful Living was all about discovering wisdom for living as found in the book of Proverbs. This is an essential discipline and life practice for all believers. And this month, we want to offer you the series on CD for free as our gift. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. First of all, I want you to notice the palm branches. 
During the time of the Maccabees, they were rulers who ruled Judea from 164 to 63 BC. The Jews started to use palm branches as symbols of nationalism, as symbols of their hope for freedom. The cry, Hosanna, means save us now. So the crowd lines the way to welcome him with palms and hosannas. And then they begin to chant, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Originally, that psalm was written to encourage the pilgrims who went up to Jerusalem for Passover with a word of blessing. But in the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, the psalm began to be a thought of pronouncing a blessing to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the Messiah himself, the one who would defeat all of the Jewish oppressors. And then the crowd begins to chant something not found in Psalm 118. They begin even to chant, even to the king of Israel. They were hailing him as the king, as their king. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are watching and paralyzed in fear. This could set off a Roman response, but they don't confront the crowd because the crowd would turn on them. And so imagine Jesus at the crest of the hill and beginning to go down the Mount of Olives, and it is here that he comes to a stop. Jerusalem is in view, and the Pharisees run up beside him. Please stop your disciples, they say. Don't proceed this way. You must know what this will produce. It could produce a wholesale slaughter. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's quoting from Habakkuk 2 verse 11. In that passage, God is confronting the sins of Babylon, and God says, the stones in the wall of the houses that you Babylonians have built from the resources gained by your bloody warfare are crying out against you for the great crimes you've done. And here on this Sunday, Jesus is saying, if you ask these people to stop rejoicing and praising and shouting out Psalm 118, at this moment, the stones of creation will cry out, for not shouting out in worship at this moment would be a monstrous crime. These stones would shout out in accusation against you. And from the perspective of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, this is getting out of control. But Jesus is carefully orchestrating this moment. He is deliberately forcing the Sanhedrin to change their timetable so that they might kill him at Passover. Jesus insists on that. Forever after this, he will be remembered as the Passover lamb. Unless his blood is applied to those who believe, they will not escape the angel of death. And as these events are unfolding, Luke records an event. Jesus stops at the top of the Mount of Olives looking at the city. And if you are there today, you can see the Muslim Dome of the Rock, but in Jesus' day, you would have seen the temple. And Josephus describes that the building was magnificent. First of all, the entire complex covered 35 acres. That was just the building with its courtyard. Each pillar in the courts of that building was of one entire stone made up of white marble. One can imagine the massive great stones that adorned the walls, a cream color making up massive walls. One can imagine also a great archway in which right then thousands of pilgrims would be walking and watching. And in the center, the massive Holy of Holies arose, the gold lining of the roof shining brilliantly in the sun. There was the place of sacrifice. It was the site that often filled pilgrims with indescribable joy. But Jesus is not rejoicing. He's weeping. 
And through his tears, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He knows that if you asked the religious leaders what makes for peace, they would have said, well, that has to do with stopping the crowds from inciting a Roman reprisal on all this celebration. And if you asked the crowd what makes for peace, they would have said, well, it's to have Jesus claim his throne and set us free from Roman oppression the way Moses set us free from Pharaoh. But of course, they don't know what makes for peace. Peace with God always involves the sin question, and the welcoming of a Savior makes for peace. But no one, not even the disciples, understood this. And so through tears blinding his eyes, he says, The day will come on you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and tear you to the ground, and not one stone will be left on another. Less than 40 years later, the Roman emperor Titus would send his troops into Jerusalem and slaughter the Jews, driving them from their promised land for 2,000 years. And of those massive stones which would not be left one on another because of an accident, the temple was burned, leaving the gold in the temple to run between the stones. And the Romans would pry one stone apart from another just to get at the gold. And to this day, no temple has been rebuilt. That's because the temple had been rejected by God. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. But the temple he spoke of was his body. Jesus meant that his death on the cross made the temple sacrifices no longer necessary. By his death, he put an end to temple sacrifices. And so as the crowd is cheering, Jesus is weeping. You will not welcome me in the end. You will reject me, and God will bring the judgment rightly due on this place. He knows that the very place where he weeps, less than 40 years later, on that very ground, the Roman 10th Legion would pitch their camp and besiege Jerusalem, bringing horrible destruction and death, and disperse the center of Jewish worship. And with those words said in tears, King Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, rides his donkey down the steep slopes of the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, up the other side, and into Jerusalem, the crowds cheering wildly, this year in Jerusalem. Behold, here is our king. And they're right, but no one knows what these events mean except Jesus. Notice one important thing which Mark brings to our attention. According to Mark 11, verse 11, by the time Jesus entered into Jerusalem, it was already late. That would mean that Jesus deliberately timed the events on Palm Sunday to be as late in the day as possible. And because of that, the crowds were incapable of consummating his coronation as king. That's why no riot ensued, and that's why there was no Roman reprisal and no attempted coronation as king. Because of the lateness of the hour, the enthusiasm of the day had no time to peak. So how did the events of Palm Sunday actually end? According to Mark, Jesus simply went into the temple and looked around and went back out and returned the way he came out of the city, through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, all the way back to Bethany, a three-kilometer journey where he spent that night as he had the night before. That might sound a bit anticlimactic, but it really isn't. As we will see through this amazing week of Jesus' passion, everything he did has to do with the temple. When he rode into Jerusalem, he rode to the temple. And he keeps coming back to that same temple until he establishes that the temple in Jerusalem is going away, and the only temple that remains is the temple of his own body. And so the conductor has mounted his podium. He has indicated that this Passover, he will be the center of attention. All Jerusalem's eyes will be on him. He will challenge hypocrisy and utterly condemn it. 
He will replace the thousands upon thousands of temple lambs with his own sacrifice. He will announce the end of an old era and the beginning of a new era, a new covenant written in his blood. And when that faithful week is all over, he will have died for the sins of the world and more. He will have defeated death, sin, hell in the grave, and established that he is not only the center of the religious and political longings of Jerusalem, but he is the center of the longings of the whole earth. That brings us back to that prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Behold, your king comes to you. In that prophecy, Zechariah saw one riding into Jerusalem so humbly on a donkey, and then concluded of that king, his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the very ends of the earth. And that's precisely what Jesus came to Jerusalem to do. He came to take his place on the throne and rule to the very ends of the earth. That's what we find during Passion Week. John, thanks again for another great message as we journey to the cross. And as you were talking, I was reflecting a lot of my opportunity to uh, go to Israel in the past. And I was thinking, John, what are some of the the scenes uh, that are central to the Passover week? Yeah, I think one of the uh, scenes that everyone must go to is to to go to the Mount of Olives, or if they can, uh, to sit on the Western Steps. And if you sit on the Western Steps, those steps are probably the very same steps that were there at the time of Jesus. So you kind of know that Jesus walked up those steps into Jerusalem. But if you stand at the Western Steps and look at the Mount of Olives, uh, you can actually see there is a stone wall, and the stone wall will lead you down, and you can actually look at and uh, recapture in your own mind the actual uh, journey that Jesus took down the Mount of Olives, then up the other side to those very steps. So you can actually see where Jesus went. And if you look at it, you can actually go back and and walk those very same steps. And if you want to have a chance to say, I walked where Jesus walked, uh, that would take you there uh, absolutely. So that's one of the places. I think to go to the Temple Mount, uh, to the Western Wall, and to stand there and to recognize this is the place where our Lord uh, fulfilled all the temple sacrifices. I hope today's program has helped you gain a deeper appreciation for what the picture of Jesus, the great humble king riding in Jerusalem, really meant for the Jewish people and, in fact, for the world. What a great moment in history. Yet at the same time, Jesus knew his own people would ultimately reject and crucify their Messiah, the one who came to make the ultimate sacrifice for them. Join us tomorrow as we continue this series, moving on in Jesus' journey during the Passion Week with Dr. John Newfeld. The land of ancient Greece awaits you. Have you heard of Back to the Bible Canada's newest ministry vacation event? From April 24th to May 5th, 2017, we'll be taking 80 guests to experience our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour. Walk in the footsteps of Paul throughout Greece, connecting with much of his missionary journey. Visit such famous locations as Ephesus, Athens, and the island of Patmos, the place of the Apostle John's revelation. Hear daily teaching from Dr. Neufeld. Enjoy words of encouragement and laughter with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and share worship and inspirational music with special musical guests, the Weebs. 
This will be an amazing and inspiring journey with eight days on land and four days on sea. Don't miss out on your chance. Space is very limited and has already begun to fill up. So give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit online at backtothebible.ca.